Let's go to the Lord. Our Lord and our God, uh, help us to understand this passage of the of your word. Help me to preach it faithfully and uh, help us to uh, not only hear, but be doers of your word as we look to our Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him. We ask in his name. Amen. All right. So last week we learned from the first two verses of chapter five that as God's dearly loved children, we are to be imitators of God. We are to imitate him specifically, he says in verse 2, by walking in love. So I'll read the first two verses of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So now, as we come to verse 3, we see that Paul uses the conjunction, but. So, verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among, among saints. So Paul is setting a contrast between the way we must live as children of God and the lifestyle that is contrary to it. Giving yourself, in other words, Paul is saying, to sexual immorality, to all impurity, uh, or to being a covetous person is completely incompatible with a Christian profession. Paul says that it must not even be named among the Christian community of believers. Christians, as imitators of God, must reflect his righteousness and his moral purity. Well, this is difficult because we live in a world that does not reflect God's righteousness and his moral purity. The world cares not for God's righteousness. We live in a culture that is immersed in sexual immorality and all sorts of impurity. It's inescapable. It's all around us. We're immersed in this culture. What does Paul mean by sexual immorality? Well, the Greek word that Paul uses here in verse 3 is the word pornea. It is a broad word covering all kinds of sexual sin. It includes sexual relations outside the marriage relationship. It includes adultery, prostitution, as well as, of course, pornography. But Paul was not content to reference outside forms of sexual immorality only. He also includes this phrase, all impurity. This includes sexual desires, lustful fantasies, um, and, uh, and just uh, impure thoughts in general. God wants us to hotly and earnestly pursue purity in our lives and in our minds. And I want to pause for a moment and give a short 
practical teaching on how to pursue purity in regard to sexual immorality. This is one of those little side trails that will go on as we uh, go through the sermon. And the first, so this, how to pursue purity in regard to sexual immorality. I would say you should not approach it as purely a matter of obedience. If you approach uh, trying to be obedient in regard to sexual, uh, sexual sin, then uh, if it's just about obedience, then it will come down to your self-discipline or your self-will to say no to your thoughts and your urges. And not too many people have that kind of self-discipline. Rather, I would say, pursue purity as a matter of your trust in God. Will you trust your heavenly Father who loves you so much that he gave his own son to go to the cross for your salvation? Will you trust him that he wants what is best for you when he tells you to avoid sexual immorality, all impurity or covetousness, that you are to so avoid it that it should not even be named among God's people? Will you believe him when he tells you to flee from sexual immorality and all impurity that it is really for your good and that he will give you power by his spirits working in your soul to say no to the temptation. And so it's a matter of trusting in God rather than a, a matter of your willpower to say no and to be obedient. Does that make sense? Paul also mentions covetousness. Well, covetousness at its, at its uh, root, I think, is uh, basically greed. It's desiring something that you have no right to. So again, verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Well, this is kind of an unusual coupling. Sexual immorality, all impurity, well, those two things kind of go together. But then covetousness? Why is he listing these three things together and, uh, and linking them? Well, I think that Paul mentions sexual sin and covetousness together because both result from first deciding in the heart that what God provides is insufficient, that it's not enough. We tell ourselves that what God has provided is inadequate. So we pursue things that are off-limits to us. We make sexual immorality or uh, money, um, greed for money, an idol that our soul pursues without respect to what God says. And I think verse 5 confirms this when it says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, he says, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So 
he links sexual immorality and pursuing these things that are off limits to you and greed, uh, covetous greed that is off limits to you. He links them together. He says that they're idolatry. So I want to warn you to keep or to guard your heart in regard to sexual desires or greediness. This, if you were uh, here a couple of weeks ago on Sunday evening when I preached from uh, Proverbs chapter 4, uh, verse 23 on keeping your heart, uh, I'm, I'm referring back to that sermon and some of the things that I taught then uh, in, these, in this next little rabbit trail of, uh, of practical application. In your heart, you can uh, secretly desire or daydream or fantasize about sexual desires, and no one will ever know except you and God. But it will be a destructive force of great power in your soul and in your life. And here's how this happens. The sin that you nurture in your heart takes root in your heart. To some extent, as you nurture that sin, it takes a seat in the control room of your life. Sexual lust starts to compete for more and more of your attention. Your, your convictions regarding the sinfulness of sexual immorality begin to soften. Then you begin to act, um, act out um, upon your sinful desires in your life. And all the while, the ungodly conviction grows within you that you need this, whatever it is you're desiring, these sexual desires, that you need to have them in your life, that you need to act upon them, or the, the covetous greed, you need more money than, uh, or, or need something else or someone else other than, than, than who God has given you. And so uh, you think, you know, in order for my life to be fulfilled, I've got to have this, or I've got to have that. You see, sinful habits and addictions start in your desires that you nurture inside the unseen control room of the heart. This process can play out, not just in sexual immorality, but also in covetous desires such as greed or anything else that we allow to sit uh, in the control room of our heart. And then once sin takes root in the heart and becomes a controlling factor in one's life, it needs to be cut off and rooted out at the heart level. And it is not just a one-time repentance uh, that is needed. You must be swinging a sin-killing axe of, the, of uh, spirit-empowered repentance continually. John Owen, the great 17th century theologian, once said, Do you mortify? He's talking about killing sin. He's using uh, the term mortification from uh, chapter 
Romans chapter 8. He says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Will it always, or be at it, uh, be always at it whilst you live? Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Paul mentions sexual immorality, all impurity, and covetousness because these sins have been particularly adept at worming their way into people's affections or into the control room of people's lives. And so keep your heart against these sins because they will wreak wreak havoc in your life once they take root. This is the reason I think that Paul wrote verse 4. Many have misread this passage by reading verse 4 in isolation from the context. In fact, I read some of the commentaries and sermons this week that seem to suggest that Christians should never joke around or waste words by using humor. These commentators struggled and were coming to these conclusions because, uh, and they struggled because they're reading verse 4 in isolation from everything else. But they didn't want to suggest that Christians be dour, uh, humorless bores. But by looking at verse 4 in isolation, that seemed to be to them, to these commentators, what Paul was saying. So look at verse 4 with me. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Paul is not saying that humor is out of place for a Christian. Rather, he is saying that one of the most important inroads into our hearts is our speech. If we, as God's children, start imitating the world instead of imitating God, if we start imitating the world with its filthiness, with its empty foolishness, and its crude humor, then we will let down the walls uh, or the fortress uh, walls of our heart. Instead of killing sin, we're indulging it. Brian Chapel wisely says that Paul is urging us to put sexual immorality, all impurity, and covetousness on a starvation diet. He says, what turns down the intensity of improper lust is starving it of improper fuel. Indulging sexual impurities of speech, thought, and entertainment will feed the power of sin in our lives. So uh, that, was, that was one of the thoughts on the context of verse 4. I've got two more thoughts on the, on the context of verse 4. First of all, television, the internet, social media obviously had not yet been invented when Paul wrote his epistle to the uh, Ephesians. Now, I'm guessing... He would have also said something about not consuming the vulgar and filthy content that come flooding uh, out at you from these mediums had he written it in our day and age. Now, I am not saying 
don't watch TV or anything like that, but I am saying that you must put guards on what you watch because you cannot afford to indulge sexual impurity all uh, and, and, and covetousness at any level. You must starve it rather than feed it. And I'll be honest, I struggled uh, through this passage this week um, because I like the dumb and dumber type of humor. Uh, I, I, I don't uh, typically seek it out because I'd rather watch people kill each other and blow each other up in action movies. Uh, but if I'm scrolling through and I see it, I, I stop and I, I laugh um, uproariously. Uh, at it, much to Mandy's annoyance. So I've been asking the question, can I never, ever watch Lloyd and Harry again? Can I never watch an Adam Sandler movie again and still be obedient to Ephesians 4? Well, I think I've come up with an answer. I'm not going to give it now. I don't have time to walk us through this question in this sermon, but if you want to ask me offline, I'd welcome your questions, and I'll give you my thoughts, uh, such that they are. And so um, the second thought about, or the third thought about the context of verse 4 has to do with the audience that Paul is writing to. He's writing to the church, not to the world. And so Paul is envisioning groups of Christians standing around talking uh, to each other, maybe in the church or in the Christian community. And if the, convert, the conversations slide into filthiness and crude humor, well, it doesn't build up or encourage anyone. Rather, it implicitly tells others that it's all right to engage in that sort of talk. It tears down the church instead of building it up. So look again at verse 4. Paul says that this kind of speech is out of place for God's children. One more point about verse 4, and then we'll move through verses 5 through 7. Paul is not preaching morality in verse 4. Um. I try to spend time with unbelievers. I get, I get a chance to do to spend uh, time with unbelievers every week. I, one of the the ways I can do that is uh, through my business leads group that I am a member of. Invariably, uh, someone uh, as they're talking, they you know I introduce myself, they introduce themselves, and we just start talking, and they don't know I'm a pastor yet. And so they start cursing as they speak with me. And they're, they're not angry uh, at me. It's just a normal way of, their, of speaking. And um, when they find out uh, that I'm a pastor, they start apologizing to me. Frankly, I am not offended by their, their, uh, their speech in the least, unless, of course, they... Uh, start using the Lord's name in vain. Um, I tell them that I'm not offended, that I'm not the speech police. 
See, I'm not going to be exercised about their speech and rebuke them for their language. That just creates a barrier between uh, them and me. I am concerned not about um, their morality of speech, ultimately. I am concerned about their relationship with Almighty God. And so I need to have a relationship with them in order to point them to a relationship with God. If I go around trying to reform their speech, it disqualifies me in their eyes from being able to speak into their lives. So I don't engage in their manner of speech, but I generally don't condemn it either. I'm eager to point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. I've said uh, at different points as we've been going through uh, Ephesians chapter 4 into chapter 5 that Paul's point here is not to make unbelievers moral when he gives these these, uh, moral uh, commands. He's talking to the church. He's talking to people who are already believers. So it is not our goal as the church to go around and reform society into these patterns of morality as our first goal. Our goal, our charge from the Lord Jesus Christ himself is to preach the gospel. And the Holy Spirit will reform people from the inside out. In verses 5 through 7, Paul gives three warnings to Christians underscoring his command to flee from all sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness. So the first warning that he gives is in verse 5. I've already read it. I'll read it again. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness or who is covetous that is, an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So this first warning is that living a lifestyle that is sexually immoral and impure or giving yourself to covetousness is irreconcilable with one who belongs um, to the kingdom of Christ And God. Sinclair Ferguson says, We cannot be heirs of a holy kingdom while we are living as citizens of a sinful one. This passage is very clear. Anyone who lives a sexually immoral, impure, or covetous life will not enter heaven. They have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Engaging in sexual relations outside the marriage covenant, living together without being married, or viewing pornography is very common and acceptable in our culture, but these things are squarely incompatible with one who professes faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's very tempting to try and shoehorn in exceptions to verse 5, but I don't know how it can be done. It is a solemn warning. 
Now, there may be someone here who is struggling in these areas and is repenting over and over because they're continually struggling. Paul's not saying that any person who falls into any of these sins is eternally excluded from God's kingdom. We are sinners. We prove it every day. (laughs) We prove it to ourselves. And, of course, God knows that we are sinners. Um, You know, throughout our lives, every day, we prove it in ways that shock us. We prove it repeatedly. But we struggle against it because we hate the sin even as it exercises its hold on us. We repent, we cry out to God, and we flee from it. Repentance, according to the Bible, is a sorrow for sin, a turning away from sin, and a turning to God in obedience that takes us in the opposite direction than the sin we were committing. It's easy to be sorrowful about our sin because sin brings sadness. And it's easy to turn away from sin because sin brings bad consequences. But true repentance also embraces God's direction. One can easily be sad for sin and turn away from it without trusting God. When you are repenting, make sure that you are not pursuing a partial repentance, which is ultimately a counterfeit repentance. Be sorrowful for it. Um, Turn away from it, but then embrace the obedience that God calls you to. And that obedience that he calls you to is the opposite of the the uh, the sin that you are committing. So maybe someone th- uh, thinking on another uh, on another level that I'm teaching a work salvation here. Maybe you're saying to yourself, "Well, it sounds like you're saying you have to be free from sexual immorality, all impurity, and covetousness before you can be a Christian." Well, I'm not saying that, and neither is Paul. We are justified by faith alone. God does not justify people who have sufficiently repented. He justifies the ungodly. But when he saves us, he does not only justify us and forgive us of our sins. He also applies to us Jesus Christ and the whole of his salvation. The moment we are saved, we are indeed justified. We are indeed forgiven of all our sins, past, present, future sins. And we are also new creatures, uh, new creations in Christ with new desires. We have the Holy Spirit living within us, and He is producing a new life in us. In other words, Our lives will be different from who we were before we became Christians, and we will be different from the world. At the center of our heart will be the desire to imitate our 